Hey, Jay, I was thinking, Tempo deserves so much better than the Mutant Liberation Front. No kidding, Miles. She's great. I wish she were still around. She's not? What happened? Did she get depowered during M-Day? No, she kept her powers. Much good they did her. She's dead, man. Ah. How? Age of X. That thing where the whole world is mutated because of the Terrigen Mists and Duatu is blind? No, what you're thinking of is Earth-X. Age of X is the pocket dimension come splinter timeline that one of Legion's personalities created during the Utopia days. Oh, the one with the evil but not sexy and kind of imaginary Moira McTaggart. Now you got it. Wait, I thought everything that happened there went back to normal. Most of it did, but apparently if you die in Age of X, you die for real. Well, that reminds me, how did they undo that timeline anyway? Well, they had to find the real universe. What, like, outside? Not exactly. In fact, you could say that the 616 was inside Age of X all along. Like self-confidence? Like it was in a box in someone's bedroom. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode number 184 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the all-new, all-different X-Factor. It's not that new. I mean, these characters have all been around for a while, at least. They have, but they've never hung out and snarked in quite the way that they snark in this arc. Well, in this series, really. Nor so exquisitely rendered by Larry Stroman. I love Larry Stroman. He doesn't do all of the art in here, but he does most of it, and every panel is a delight. I'm actually kind of relieved about the issues he doesn't draw in here because they're part of the arc that I really don't like, and that way, like, my Larry Stroman associations can can remain pure and untainted and perfect. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was I was initially very surprised at your uh, your strong negative reaction to that arc, but then you explained it, and it made a lot of sense. It's really racist, dude. It's like extremely racist. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. But first, I should say, so I finished The Gifted. I didn't intend to binge it all last night and finish it, but that was interesting. That's going some places. Right. Oh, man, I'm really excited for season two, I gotta say. I gotta say, too, in context of The Gifted, something I think I forgot to bring up last time is that we've had a lot of conversations on this show about representations of mental illness in superhero media, and especially as an expression of versus in combination with superpowers. And it's really, one, one of the things that I'm really happy about with The Gifted is that I, I get to add it to the list of, of media that I feel like really does that right. I would agree, yeah. I thought that handled it in a really mature fashion, like from a number of angles, but with its heart in absolutely the right place and the execution in absolutely the right place. Agreed. Well, anyway, the gifted aside, since this is in fact a podcast about the X-Men comics, not the X-Men current TV show, or I guess shows, because Legion also got renewed. I mean, look, it's it's a show about the X-Men in general, as as an expansive topic whose bounds are determined only by what we do and don't feel like talking about on a given night. It is nice having absolute power within this very limited sphere. Does it come with absolute responsibility, or do we get to pass that buck to some extent? I guess it kind of depends on um, how cavalier we are about potentially losing all our listeners. I mean, I guess we, we, we have absolute power just within a very, very limited sphere. That sounds about right. Um, now I'm just trying to think of how they would describe that on like old trading cards where they have the uh, various sliders on the back for fighting skills and energy projection and stuff like that. 
I'm trying to think of a character analog and I'm not coming up with a good one, but oh, actually Age of X is a fairly good metaphor here because it exists in a limited and self-contained context. Wait a minute. Are you saying that we're all in David Haller's head? I mean, I always suspected. I am not. I am saying that we are the relative David Haller's of this podcast. Oh, well, that's both troubling and quite pleasing. I hope my hair can do that. Man, enough moose. Your hair can do anything. I actually did this whole groom of Frankenstein thing for Halloween that got my hair so freaking tall. I was very pleased. My partner Anna helped me with it. We looked on YouTube for hair videos, and uh, I kind of want to do that every day, but it took like an hour to put together, so maybe not. Yeah, there's a reason beehives went out with the 60s, buddy. Oh, those poor bees. Was I not supposed to keep bees in my hair? No, bees are good. Bees are our friends. Eh, somebody had allergies. I mean, the ambulances came. There was screaming and eh, you know i'm in halloween i guess that's appropriate bees are nice you just you just gotta you just gotta keep them in 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 their comfort zone and and be cool with them so keep them in an apiary not an ap hair pee we're gonna leave that joke in because i believe in taking responsibility for what i did meanwhile x factor i hope you're happy in the life you've chosen for yourself i mean you know overall yeah Dr. Valerie Cooper has created a new government-sponsored mutant team called X-Factor, not to be confused with the previous X-Factor, which was a non-government-sponsored team composed of the original five X-Men, originally masquerading as mutant hunters, as well as functioning as renegade mutants under the name Exterminators, with the help of Angel's erstwhile best frenemy Cameron Hodge. Those guys are back off being X-Men. X-Factor is now all new, all different, and all official. Who have we got? Well, they're led by Havoc, that is Cyclops' brother, Alex Summers. He's got plasma blasts and a funny piece of headgear. Not necessarily officially, but de facto second in command is Polaris, Lorna Dane, Magneto's on-again, off-again daughter. She is the mistress of magnetism. And she's got rad green hair. And I am very pleased to see in this book one of my favorite characters, Wolfsbane, the former new mutant and also unfortunate victim of Genosha, Rain Sinclair. She can turn into a hybrid wolf-slash-human. Her powers are a little different than they used to be, but mostly the hybrid wolf slash human is where it's at these days. Yeah, she's hanging out in the hybrid form as a default and not going to her full human form because when she does that, she reverts to a uh, brainwashed Genosian mutate. Fucking Genosha. Those jerks. Right? Next up, we've got strong guy Guido Caracella, Lila Cheney's former bodyguard. He is a strong guy. Probably one of my favorite superhero code names in all of superhero comics. Then we have another of my favorite characters, Multiple Man. That's Jamie Madrox. He can duplicate himself upon impact again and again and again. Rounding out the team is yet another of Magneto's on-again, off-again offspring, Quicksilver Pietro Maximoff. He's got super speed and super snark to go with it. That just makes me think that we should call him the on-spring again, off-spring again. I mean, you'd think that would save words, but I think it just makes it more complicated. But last time, this team of disparate characters fought an evil senator, sort of, and a mutant team called the Nasty Boys, who captured Jamie. Unbeknownst to X-Factor, the Nasty Boys were actually working for Mr. Sinister. Now, X-Factor has a few Nasty Boys captive. Now, that's what happened in X-Factor before. However, X-Factor number 76, the first X-Factor issue we'll be covering today, actually takes place between parts two and three of an Incredible Hulk story called War and Pieces. This is punishment. Well, Peter David was writing The Incredible Hulk at the time, and it makes sense to me that he had the characters interact. I think it's an interesting thing to see X-Factor coming in as government agents into a book not their own, but because it's not an official crossover, it's kind of hard to figure out how to cover this. 
you can pretty much follow the story just reading the X Factor issues. That's what I did the first time. And then I went back and read the whole thing in order and found that while the Hulk stuff added a little bit of context, it didn't really give me anything that I strictly needed to follow along with the X Factor action. Yeah, I mean, really, it's a Hulk story, X-Factor guest stars, but the important X-Factor stuff happens in the single issue of their book. That being said, X-Factor number 76, the issue in question, that was actually the first issue of the new X-Factor that I personally bought. It was my first exposure to this team, and without knowing what came before in the book since X-Factor number 71 when the team got together, without having read War and Pieces, and without being familiar with about half the characters, I was very, very confused. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a starting point, buddy. I mean, it seemed to work out. Wasn't your first X-Men I- issue Kulan Goth? Uh, the first one I got from my father, yeah, it was the Kulan Goth era, and it opens up sort of in medias res with, you know, New York already having transformed into this sword and sorcery hyperborean city-state, and I assumed that this was just like the middle chapter of a story arc and all this shit had happened before, but no, like, it does just drop you into the middle of things, so in a way, I read that the most appropriately that I possibly could have. To be fair, during the Claremont era, everything is technically the middle chapter of at least one story arc. Yeah, one of the commenters on a post on our website was actually uh, talking about that, how the commenter preferred the day when just everything led into everything led into everything. And I think we talked a bit about that in the Excalibur uh, episode that we just did, because that's something that Alan Davis does, at least for long uh, runs of issues. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm honestly with that commenter. I think I was I was in that thread. And I really enjoyed that hit the ground running, confused, but you can kind of take it in stride tone much more than the distinct, here are six issues, they are a story arc, they are being written to be collected in a single trade paperback. And if you're not there from the beginning, you're kind of screwed. Like, I I really love that that, that open-ended serial format. I can see advantages either way. I mean, you know, back in college, I believe we were both exclusively reading in-trade paperback, and it did make things a little more coherent with the six-month gaps we had to wait for. Yeah, I mean, what it comes down to for me is that I like stories that fit their formats well, and I like it when the format follows the story rather than vice versa. So it's not so much that I like open-ended, long-running serials better better than distinct arcs, so much as that I feel like both should be options. It shouldn't be an either-or. Yeah, I think that that absolutely makes sense, and and I totally agree. I'd say leave it up to the writers and the artists, Um, but, you know, companies don't. Anyway, though, previously on The Incredible Hulk, it's rare that I get to say that. So at this point in the Hulk, uh, Bruce Banner and the Hulk are effectively one. The Hulk is super strong. He's also super smart. He seems to be super sassy, but that may not be canon. It may just be because Peter David's writing him. Peter David kind of writes everybody super sassy. He really does. So the Hulk is working with a group called the Pantheon. Now, I believe we mentioned them in a cold open not too long ago. We did. They are a bunch of second or third generation as guardians who for some goddamn reason are all named after Greek gods. I guess they just heard the god part and didn't really pay attention to the details. So the Hulk's working with them. Also working with the Hulk is sidekick extraordinaire Rick Jones. Now we saw him, or at least a version of him during the cross-time caper when Excalibur went to a world that was all heroes and villains fighting and he was just being everybody's sidekick. That's kind of his thing. It's kind of what he does. Yeah, he is, he, is, he is Rick Jones, he knows everybody, he's tagged along with everybody, and rarely does he take action into his own hands, but oh boy does he ever in this story. Sure does. So all of these characters are in the Middle Eastern country, fictional country I should say, of Trans-Sabal. They're helping rebels who are fighting against the despotic leader of the country, a guy named Farnak Don. Farnak is his title, not his first name. 
So Trensable is effectively every really uncomfortable American or Western European stereotype of a Middle Eastern country you have ever seen in a piece of media published from about 1945 to maybe like 1994. Yeah, it seems like what David's going for here is he's showing an example, uh, creating an example of the U.S. propping up a crappy dictatorship in exchange for, you know, getting material resources, uh, oil, it's implied. Um, And this is kind of a Cold War thing, right? I mean, Jay, you're much more familiar with this era of history than I was. I was just playing video games. I mean, propping up dictatorships and meddling in foreign affairs is is not strictly a Cold War thing, but it it did definitely... I wouldn't say it actually. I was going to say it peaked during the Cold War, but no, that's that's actually maybe an overly optimistic assessment. Anyhow, what's happening in Transibal is basically an expression of what's called the Eisenhower Doctrine, um, which you can date by its name. It's been around since the Eisenhower presidency, which is basically that the U.S. would intervene to support governments in the Middle East that appeared to be threatened by what Im- implicitly the creep of communism. Like if there appeared to be any kind of populist uprising, the U.S. had a mandate to step in and bolster the existing status quo. Now, by the time this book came out, what was more effectively in play was the Reagan doctrine. That was something that you mainly saw played out in Central and South America, um, which involved supporting rebel groups trying to overthrow populist and socialist governments. So, for example, the Contras. This manages to mess with both at the same time while also kind of being the worst of of imperialism, which is really uncomfortable. And it's an odd point for it to come out, too, because this is post-fall of the USSR. And the most relevant current event I can think of to it is the Gulf War. Yeah, and I mean, I believe David has actually referenced the Gulf War already. Right, but this this obviously isn't a parallel to that. And again, the the events and the the specific interventions that it's it's riffing on are, are things that happened much 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 earlier. And again, this is I it's it's interesting that you see this as like a late Cold War thing because while it is you know Cold War derived, it's been around as a trope in media and 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 played as a parallel for much, much longer. I mean, what, what do you think the Vietnam War was? Yeah, well, fair. But what's going on in the comic is that the Farnock is asking the U.S. for more aid as the rebels who are teamed up with, you know, the Hulk, who's basically indestructible, and the Pantheon, who are damn close. So the Farnock, he already has gotten a bunch of mandroids from S.H.I.E.L.D. from the U.S. He asks for more help, and so the United States sends in... Well, X-Factor, their own superhero team. X-Factor just sort of cheerfully complies. I wouldn't say cheerfully. I mean, they gripe about it a fair bit. But Havoc's take is, hey, it's a job. I should be professional. They comply as cheerfully as they do anything. They're, They're not a very cheerful bunch on the whole. I suppose that's true, yeah. And they throw down with the Hulk and the Pantheon. And they don't fare particularly well. Wolf Spain uh, gets pitched halfway across the country. Havoc uses his power to absorb the Hulk's ambient gam- gamma radiation, effectively powering down the Hulk significantly. But this results in basically Havoc exploding and destroying the surrounding landscape. 
And that's where X-Factor number 76 opens. Havoc is missing. Wolfsbane is missing. Miss Nelson is missing. <laughs> and the rest of X-Factor is looking for Havoc and Wolfsbane and Miss Nelson. Well, no, X-Factor doesn't go after them. X-Factor is still busy fighting the Pantheon, but they do have a pretty good sense, at least of the direction in which Rain got flung. So Lorna, who has fallen into the role of de facto leader with Alex disappeared, sends Quicksilver off to pick her up. Rain comes to in the desert, and she is she is discovered there by brother and sister Jalel and Sanda. And Sanda is all for leaving Rain there, minding their own business, just going home. But Jalel insists that if they've found her, it's because the Farnock willed it so. Remember how I said that this arc is real fucking racist? It's interesting because clearly these characters are meant to be Muslim, but there are never any specific references to Islam. It's just this very clear assumption with sort of the label filed off. Yeah, no, they are extremely explicitly and heavily coded as Muslim, Miles. Like, from their clothing to the very straw man theological argument that that Jalel gets in with Rain. It's really not subtle. Like, I, I don't really understand how you could read this and assume otherwise. No, I, I don't think you could. I ju- it was just interesting to me that it's not named as, as what it clearly is intended to be. Yeah, I feel like that's a really sort of bad faith cheat to get around using this kind of gross stereotype. If you say, well, I didn't say it. You're the one who said it, not me. I never said what they were Muslim. Like, yeah, you know, still... If I had to guess, I would say that Peter David might have um, created this interaction because uh, Rain Sinclair, of course, grew up as a fundamentalist Presbyterian. And, you know, that had a pretty heavy impact on her. So having her have to interact with some fundamentalists of a different religion, you could do some cool stuff with that. You could, in theory. One could do that. Um, Peter David does not do that here. What he effectively does is set up a Muslim straw man whom a suddenly weirdly, like, low-key and tolerantly Christian reign sticks out against as absolutely reasonable in the face of his extremism and de facto worship of Farnock as as a prophet. And seriously, this is this storyline. I am I am like 90% sure that I have encountered this exact storyline in a Tintin comic. That is not always a good comparison. Yeah, I know some of those the creator actually recalled because of how he realized they were. Well, he redrew some of them and he wrote pretty extensive apologetic introductions to them. He didn't, he didn't, yeah. And then, then there are a few volumes that are now packed shrink-wrapped. But this is, this is a kind of representation and a specific kind of like racist dog whistling and just even, even the entire narrative setup of this like, this isn't, it's not just offensive, it's really, really trite by this point. This is, this is a nation that has been taken over by a charismatic ruler who is effectively setting himself up as a prophet slash, you know, conduit to the divine, who has manipulated his backwards and overly zealously religious and generally kind of dull populace all of whom are living in penury into functionally worshiping him so that he can personally pursue his thirst for wealth, power, and scantily clad ladies. And again, this is like, this is such a specific trope and it's such a specific, like weird racist trope. And 
it bugs me for that. And it bugs me for how utterly, I mean, I, I realize that it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's like saying, you know, that murder was, was just kind of inexpert to say, yeah, this is, this racism isn't even original, but it's not. So anyway, um, the whole story is super gross and I super hate it. And, um, my, my one, my one bit, I, I mentioned, you know, my, my one bit of comfort here is that, that this issue of X Factor is not drawn by, by Larry Stroman. So, so at least it hasn't tainted my, my, pure and heartfelt love for that. But um, Jalal is, is super sexist. He is incredibly, he's, you know, he's making a bunch of bad faith arguments about religion. Quicksilver finds Rain, but Jalal chases after her. Um, he's, he's about to stab her when, when Sanda, his sister, whacks him over the head with a bottle. He's been, he's been forcing her out of conversations and saying that, you know, she doesn't matter because she's just a female. And then Rain starts to go off and then Jalal stabs Sanda and, um, for for disobeying him and making him mad, and then Rain either murders or at least very enthusiastically mauls him off panel. So that happens. She definitely kills him, and that's actually going to be a lasting impact of this story for her character, her realizing that she, you know, murdered somebody, because I believe that's actually the first time that she's straight up killed anybody in the entire history of the character. Do you think she eats him? I'm going to say no. Like a little bit? I mean, I guess... His blood's probably in her mouth some. Would that make it better or worse from a general ethical um, standpoint? So Stranger in a Strange Land was a really influential book on me when I was a teenager for a number of reasons. But one of the concepts that I thought was kind of beautiful once I got past the gross-out factor was the idea of when someone you love dies, the community actually eats them. And as I understand, there are cultures who have done this uh, in in the history of, of mankind that is sort of this beautiful ritual to honor who they are. But that wouldn't really apply here. So I'm going to say it's probably better that she didn't. I mean, it would probably have really upset her. Just just from a, a basic overarching standpoint, I'm, I'm low-key pro-opportunistic cannibalism. I feel like if it was Feral, she totally would have eaten him. Oh, unquestionably. But if it were Feral, she wouldn't have had time to finish killing him because she would have done it really creatively and slowly and stuff probably. Yeah, yeah, true. Feral is the worst, but I kind of respect her dedication to being the worst. How do you think she'd get along with Bert from Sesame Street? I, I don't know. I mean, they're both kind of the worst. And don't get me wrong, I love Bert. He's the best worst. But, like, uh, they're such different kinds of being the worst that I feel like they'd hate each other. She's very messy. First of all, fuck you for that. Second, I'm not... that. It's, it's not because they're both, like, unsociable. It's because they're both really into, into and protective of their pigeons. Oh, I, I never thought about that. Yeah, like, Feral has, Feral has straight up murdered on behalf of her pigeons. I don't remember that part. Oh, wait, no, now I do. As has Bert. <laughs> I 100% believe that. But anyway, x Factor keeps fighting the Pantheon, and people don't really accomplish anything. The plot almost entirely resolves in The Incredible Hulk number 392, the final chapter of that story. Which somehow manages to make it worse. Okay, so we'll very briefly go through this just simply because it at least tells us how X-Factor got from number 76 to number 77. Basically, the Farnock of this country has signed these treaties preventing him from using nuclear weapons, so instead he's going to use his nuclear prisoner. That's right, he found havoc. Yeah, that that didn't even work the time someone actually tried to do it with a lot of underlying plot and meltdown. 
You know, I think the Farnox main mistake is that you should have involved a manipulative redhead. Meanwhile, though, because we're playing on every single possible fucked up trope that we can here, he is also, for no fucking reason, drugged Val Cooper to make her into a scantily clad sex slave, because why not? Yeah, that part weirded me out uh, a lot, actually. Now, the U.S. representative, a Mr. Galvin, objects to, well, everything that's going on, so the Farnock just has him killed. Havoc, in the meantime, is still tied up. The Hulk shows up because he realizes that the Farnock is going to use Havoc as a weapon, and they have a debate about the ethics of military intervention into unjust regime, regimes and stuff like that. It's well-written dialogue at the very least, and then they team up and capture the Farnock, who has tied a bunch of innocent people to missiles. Thankfully, X-Factor and the Hulk rescues them. Yeah, that's really, like, I genuinely can't tell what the creative team was going for here because the Farnock is so, like, he goes from obnoxious and tropey to just beyond cartoonish in his villainy. Fortunately, democracy is saved when Rick Jones shows up in, in Mandroid armor and shoots him because really there's nothing to make the case against American intervention than American intervention. Actually, two things. I did look into this because um, I haven't read much of the Hulk. And apparently, A, Rick Jones' character arc takes a sharp turn at this point based on him doing this. The reason he shoots the Farnock is because the Farnock's people still accept him even though he's already been defeated. And secondly, this leads to a civil war in Transabal and millions of lives are lost. So it actually goes horribly. Yeah, I'm more, much more concerned with the entire nation here than with like Rick Jones's mental state because fuck that guy. I'm just saying, at least there were more realistic consequences. To a point, the sense, but but again, it goes with the tropes that this is playing on. And the thing is, like, this is trying to be a story against American intervention, but it's American intervention that 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 creates and resolves the problems, and it's American intervention that destabilizes the country, which on its own is unable to restabilize. Like the fundamental baseline argument here is that the people of this nation are incapable of effectively choosing their own fate or governing themselves. Yeah, fair enough. It's still very early in X-Factor's run, and so this, uh, this issue is, um, you know, there's some stuff, as you've been discussing, Jay. It's, it's really Kiplingy, um, and it's also extremely uncomfortable to read in light of the stuff that Peter David has said more recently that involved uncritically just diving headfirst into a lot of the kinds of really fucked up racial and cultural stereotypes that he's using narratively in this story. Yeah, and um, I'm definitely pleased that that comes up very seldom in his writing, but when it comes up, it sure comes up. Yeah, it's a weird arc because it's it's sandwiched between two stories that I really like. And it's just, it's so, so gratuitously fucked up. Like, I just, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm looking at this and I'm looking at conversations had around the next arc, you know, that we're talking about, about the, the history of that comic. And just, you know, I, I don't actually wonder how this got through publication because it got through publication in an era and in an environment and in an industry that I think was primed to overlook certain directions of bias. But it's still weird and it's still gross and it's still a 
it's an odd thing to go back and read now. And it's an odd thing to go back and read now and have to really think about whether it would get published now because a scary thing is that looking looking at the, the current landscape of comics, like I'd like to think it wouldn't, but I'm not as confident about that as I'd like to be. Well, thankfully, the next arc is much more comfortable and a great deal of fun. This is more what we've come to expect from the admittedly still very new, all-new, all-different X-Factor. Yeah, we've moved on from the controversial issue of Middle Eastern politics and American intervention to the more family-friendly, low-key, and uncontroversial question of abortion. Well, sort of, and we'll get to that sort of, and that's an interesting story how this turned out. But let's start at the start. And we open with some lovely Larry Stroman art, God, I love his work, of the Cortezes. They are a couple who have gone to visit a Dr. Tucker. Uh, the Cortezes. Wait, wait, wait. Are these, is, is one of them Fabian? Uh, no relation. Presumably they're also not gigantic fans of Betrayal. You never know. You know, we, we don't know much about these parents, except that they're concerned at the possibility that the, the fetus that one of them is gestating may end up carrying the X gene. Because that's what Dr. Tucker does. He's developed some technology that allows him with admittedly not a very high degree of accuracy, but, you know, some, to find out whether a baby will be born as a mutant. Yeah, it's got, it's, it's accurate up to 55%. And I can't actually crunch the numbers on this without the ratio of mutant to human, like, conceptions. But that, that doesn't seem wildly high. Well, and I think that's what makes the story kind of interesting, among other things, is that this procedure, which will, you know, presumably allow parents to determine whether they want to carry the child to term, for instance, which is originally what this story was going to be about, that gives it a lot more ethical ambiguity than the ethical ambiguity that would already be there, because it's ethical ambiguity based on questionable facts. Now... As we mentioned, this was originally supposed to be a story about selective abortion, and there was going to be a lot of debate between Lorna and Rain. Lorna's pro-choice, Rain is, is um, against abortion rights and vehemently pro-life. And that was changed because North Star had just come out as gay in Alpha Flight, and Marvel got a, a ton of blowback from retailers. So they decided that they would they would they would tone this down to to be marginally less explicitly about a controversial topic, which, like, man, the extent to which this is clearly a story about abortion it reminds me so much of that X-Files episode that's absolutely and clearly about necrophilia, even if they never say it. Oh, yeah, uh, and, and that villain came back a second time, as I recall. Yeah, the quote-unquote fetishist. That was really creepy. I mean, it wasn't as creepy as that one with the, the family who had their mother under the bed and, like, killed people a lot. Home? Yeah, Home is not an okay episode of, of X-Files, but no, the thing, with, oh, the thing with the necrophilia episode is that it's actually creepier than if they had just addressed the necrophilia stuff explicitly. Because it's really clear what it is, but they're just, like, edging around it in ways that somehow makes it seem even worse. Yeah. Man, the X-Files, so the X-Files was on in, what, the 90s? We were, like, young-ish during that time. I gotta say, like, as a, basically still a child watching that show, like, huddled under blankets with my eyes wide open and all the lights on in the room, that was a very effective TV show. Did, did you did you also have nightmares about about uh, video games from the, wasn't Harlan Ellison? Oh, no, it was William Gibson. Yes, and I never William saw Gibson. that as a kid. Oh, man, that episode is not good. 
Anyway, so in this scene, Larry Stroman just nails the emotions of the characters who are present. The doctor is calm and compassionate. The husband is excited, but also concerned for his wife. The wife is anxious and scared, and that manifests as anger. And what I really especially love is that all the characters have very different body types and very different facial features and body language and skin tone. And like, there's just so much, I don't know, like, Larry Stroman just draws humanity very well. He just draws people very well. Yeah. This is going to be like Alan Davis. It's going to be like Bill Sienkiewicz. We're just we're just going to rave about Larry Stroman every time we talk about X Factor when he's on it because he's he's the kind of fantastic where every time you look at another issue he drew, you find new things to focus in on and, and and love. And what Miles was talking about, yeah, he he combines the best of of cartoonishness and the kind of distinction you get between faces and people with that with with this beautiful realistic rendering and he's just he's so good he's so perfect for this story he's so perfect for this book and its tone i just kind of want to take kyle baker and larry stroman and squish them together into some kind of a super cartoonist it would be amazing oh i don't because they've got you know they've got a lot of the same tricks in hand but they're different enough that each of them has very distinct narrative sensibilities and i like that i want a world with both of them I can handle that, but they should totally team up and cross over every once in a while. They could have, like, a clone child. Okay, I feel good about this. Larry Stroman and Kyle Baker, if you're listening, please have a clone child. Well, that got weird. It sure did. But in the meantime, after this sort of cold open in the doctor's office, we see Valerie Cooper, the human uh, bureaucratic head of X-Factor, meeting with a lawyer who's representing the captured Nasty Boys. Remember, X-Factor fought the Nasty Boys in their last arc and ended up with a couple of them imprisoned. And I kind of want to just read this dialogue because I think it showcases some of of Peter David's dialogue strengths. They've known each other for a long time, enough that they're on a first name basis. So Valerie tells the lawyer... Look, Vicky, we go back a long ways. You have to trust me on this. You can't treat individuals like hairbag and slab the way you would treat ordinary people. I can't not treat them that way, Valerie. They're entitled to arraignment, trial, the same as anyone else. I know what goes on in other cities. Blind eyes being turned in New York or L.A. while super criminals get shunted off to the vault in Colorado for indefinite periods of time, cut off from attorneys, from their rights as Americans... Maybe that goes on in other cities, but not in the District of Columbia. It's unacceptable. One of the things I really enjoy about this run of X Factor, and there are quite a few, is that it's the first, I think, to really dive headfirst into the political aspects of mutation, into what politics, what laws, what ethics, what public perception to this level would be like in a world where mutants are real. Yeah, part of the fact that it's largely kind of a corporate comedy that it's 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 a workplace show gives david space and context to really explore and this is going to sound boring when i say it this way but to really explore the bureaucratic underpinnings of a team like x factor but to have it be interesting and to have it be relevant yeah absolutely i mean if you've got the mutant metaphor this is this is an aspect of it you have to address and so refreshing in an era that I think the two of us both have some issues with here and there uh, that you wouldn't expect to see that in. I mean, this is the beginning of an aspect of X-Men, I think, that has only improved the franchise. Yeah, agreed. I think playing with how, you know, we've talked about it before. Mutants are among their most interesting and the X-Men are among their most interesting as a geopolitical force, not just as a superhero team. 
And exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is this is this is a great look at that. And it's a great look at what happens when they try to play within an ostensibly friendly but functionally hostile system. Mm-hmm. Well, meanwhile, elsewhere in that system, Wolfsbane, who I think her hair is, like, bigger and pointier than ever, she is monitoring X-Factor's prisoners, those being the aforementioned Dirtbag and Slab. They also had Ramrod imprisoned. He got deported because he wasn't a U.S. citizen, so he's not around. I want to talk about Rain's hair. Actually, I want to talk about Rain's gorgeous, amazing, curly sideburns and the fact that it's really sad that no one ever cosplays Rain of this era. And I kind of get why they don't, because it would be a pain because you have to, you'd have to do, you know, spirit gum facial hair st- type stuff. But that design is so cool. Yeah, it's so radically different than any way she's looked before. But her powers got super messed with in Genosha, so it makes sense that they would work very differently. She's also been, since she can't go into her fully human form anymore, exploring different wolf transitional forms she can be in. And I guess one of the ones that she has settled into as a common one just has gigantic goddamn hair and rad sideburns. Yeah, no, the sideburns are super cool and they're like they're they're amazing and it's it's one of those things that I wish more artists would play with with female characters. Totally agree, yeah. That was actually one of the things I liked about the Hobbit movies, one of not very many things, which is that the female dwarves, when you saw them for about four seconds, had rad sideburns. Good for them. Well, in an ideal world, you'd see that on human characters sometimes too, because the main reason that you don't ever see women with facial hair or you don't usually see women with facial hair is that it's such a, a social taboo that most of the women who can grow facial hair, you know, shave or pluck it. But representation is cool. We'll take what we can get for now. Speaking of character designs, certainly some character designs, the Mutant Liberation Front teleports in. Yeah, you know, the X-Force villains led by Strife, drawn, I believe, exclusively so far by Rob Liefeld. They're here. You know how I keep on saying that Larry Stroman is amazing and possibly a god? Mm-hmm. He makes the MLF look cool. Like, not just acceptable, not just tolerable, not just, yeah, I could see someone drawing those on purpose. They look cool. Right, we have Wildside, Forearm, Tempo, Reaper, Thumbelina, and Strobe. Okay, well, Tempo always looks cool, to be fair, but Forearm somehow looks cool? What? Yeah, I I don't know how to parse this. Like, something in my brain actually sort of tripped when I was reading this, and I had to go back and look at the page over and over because I kept on seeing the picture of Forearm and knowing, you know, objectively somewhere in my head that that was Forearm, but, like, trying to rationalize my way around it with my conscious mind. Like, maybe it's Strong Guy and he accidentally, and he was trying to draw him moving really fast and wearing the wrong costume, and, no, it's Forearm, and he looks cool, and it's, I, I, oh, God, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I say just appreciate it for now. Well, the cavalry quickly comes in, the rest of X-Factor. Reaper, however, is confused and says, Look, it's X-Force, but with a completely different lineup. And when he says X-Force, it's in like this bright red logo font. I really enjoy how confused he is. But not the X-Force logo font, just a sort of generic logo font. And Guido, who's who's been riffing on the team's marketing from the start, throws in... I'm telling you, Lex, this is going to keep happening until we get our own trading cards. Timely marketing burn. No, no, Marvel. The name of the company had actually been Marvel since the 60s. Oh, timely. Right. Nice. Thank you. I'm proud of that one. 
Well, anyway, the fight continues as Havoc and Strong Guy keep arguing about whether Guido can use the name Strong Guy. Per one of the comments that Guido makes during that argument, I'd really like to think that there's a universe somewhere that is absolutely identical in every way to the 616, except that Guido's codename is Sweetcakes. That's actually surprisingly easy to imagine. Isn't it? Well, the Mutant Liberation Front is eventually successful. They rescue Slab and Hairbag and start to teleport away through one of the portals created by Zero, their Zentai suit-clad teleporty guy. Now, it looks like they're going to get out scot-free, but X-Factor has something that X-Force doesn't. They've got someone who controls magnetism. And when you are a team led by Strife, that's going to be a major weakness. Because Strife is just on the other side of the portal. They're teleporting into his throne room, which may not be the best judgment, but that's what they're doing. And so Lorna and Wolfsbane together start pulling Strife bodily through the portal. The Mutant Liberation Front and X-Factor are literally playing tug of war with fucking Strife and somehow not getting cut up all to shit while they, while they do so. Well, X-Factor's managing it largely because the main person pulling on him is, is Lorna, who's using her powers and not her hands. That's true. However, eventually Strife manages to shoot a zappy thing from somewhere. X-Factor is distracted and lets him go, and he's pulled back through the portal to safely try to regain some dignity. X-Factor is, however, left with one of his gauntlets. They manage to pull it off. That's going to be referenced like a couple years from now when the heroes are trying to figure out why Strife is doing some evil plot. And I believe it's Strong Guy who says that maybe Strife is still mad that they took his glove. <laughs> okay, I, I appreciate that level of, of, of deep dive callback. I just appreciate Strife being completely undignified. That's the thing, the Mutant Liberation Front are such specifically X-Force villains. Like, they work for X-Force, I mean, if you like X-Force, but when they get transplanted into a book like X-Factor, which is all about snark and pratfalls and indignity and cringing, like, they just don't know what to do with it. That's one of the things that's kind of great about Rule of Cool is that it's not transitive. You have to be in a universe where coolness matters for it to actually work. Otherwise, well, this happens. Otherwise, you're just a dork covered in knives with a red cape. I feel like there's an episode title in there somewhere. <laughs> so they, they get Strife's gauntlet, as you mentioned, and... This is, this is pertinent for one other reason, because Rain, who has, has the enhanced senses of a, a wolf or a somewhat wolf, um, smells it, and she comments that, in fact, it, it smells kind of familiar, but she's not sure how. Which, of course, makes sense, because as we will later find out, slash already know because we're us and you are you, Strife is a clone of Cable, and Wolfsbane spent quite a while working with slash for Cable. One time he put her in a straitjacket and locked her in a room. Yeah, that was awkward. That was when she was turning into a princess. What a, what a bizarre story that was. And hey, that story was written by Peter David, so we're bringing it right back. X-Men. Now, after this debacle, well, more debacle for Strife, I suppose, but still somewhat one for the X-Factor. Well, the, the prisoners get away. It's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty solid debacle. It's a mutual debacle. After this mutual debacle, Valerie Cooper finally has time to debrief multiple man after the whole Senator Schaffron thing, that big five-issue arc that opened the new X-Factor. Jamie is justifiably pretty angry at Val and at X-Factor for treating him like an imposter when he was in fact the real Jamie, but Valerie is is able to, to argue him into cooperation and into forgiveness by offering to get him a signed portrait of Linda Hamilton. 
which is specifically going to be signed at his request as, to Jamie, God's gift to women. Oh, Jamie Madrox, I would say never change, but you're kind of terrible, so maybe you should, but if you were less terrible, you'd be way less enjoyable, so I don't know. Jamie Madrox, continue to exist exclusively in fictional contexts. Perfect. And this Jamie, by the way, now has all of the memories of, of the dupe he sort of reverse absorbed, which means, in fact, that he, he finally recalls all of the Fallen Angels adventures. And believe me, I'll never eat lobster again. Valid. Oh, oh, those lobsters. I miss them so. And Jamie is the only one of them who has seen the person leading the Nasty Boys. This is a guy who re to whom he refers only as Mr. S., and describes as looking like Colossus with a diamond on his head, which, in combination with the initial, is enough for Havoc to realize that Jamie is talking about Mr. Sinister. Two things. Thing one, in the Earth-X universe that we briefly referenced in the cold open, Mr. Sinister actually is a future version of Colossus. Also, Belasco is a future version of Nightcrawler, so that's weird. Second thing, Havoc is very troubled and surprised because... Mr. Sinister did some horrible shit to his ex, Madeline Pryor, and also Mr. Sinister's supposed to be dead. Cyclops blew that dude apart at the end of Inferno. Mr. Sinister has done pretty horrible shit to pretty much everyone Alex cares about. He's the one who threw malice onto Lorna and effectively spent Cyclops' childhood functionally torturing him. Like, Havix has a lot of reasons to dislike Mr. Sinister. But what is interesting about this conversation, what's most interesting is that they talk about Mr. Sinister's apparent death at the end of Inferno, and they attempt to continuity justify something that doesn't require continuity justification, which is fascinating. Because Havoc is talking about how, how Cyclops incinerated Sinister, and that's not how Cyclops' powers work, and he doesn't know why that happened. But that's not what happened. There was no implication of heat being part of the powers. Like, he, he just hit him with enough force to effectively atomize him, which is absolutely a thing you can do. Well, I mean, it's, it's a thing that can happen if a human body is hit with sufficient force. It's not a thing that, you know, one can simply do with one's eye beams. It is kind of weird, though, because, I mean, normally you would expect Sinister to get, like, blown back 100 feet into a building or something. We usually don't see Cyclops' optic blasts just blow people apart like that. But we also don't usually see Cyclops' optic blasts when they've been through a lot of de demonic energy and are hyper, 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 hyper charged up because of havoc. What we do know about those optic blasts, though, is that the quality of the energy that comes from them, the type of the energy and the strength of the blasts can be mediated by the type of energy he's absorbed. We saw that um, with Storm's lightning in an annual once. Oh, that was that thing with the rings, with the planet, with Archon. Yeah, I remember that one. My point is that there is precedent, and they waste like two panels trying to explain something that doesn't require explanation. And as a professional explainer, I am somewhat sensitive to that. Also kind of sympathetic. I feel like we do that sometimes. Havoc's also worried... But it's our job! It's true. Havoc is also worried about Polaris, about Lorna Dane, because, like you mentioned, Jay... Lorna got possessed by one of Mr. Sinister's employees for, like, a really long time. Lorna's not here right now, though, because— Which is why she still hasn't finished her dissertation. <laughs> right. Well, Lorna's not here right now. She's actually hanging out with Wolfsbane. Lorna's actually being really cool, given the love triangle, the somewhat unidirectional love triangle that she's starting to perceive. She just wants to be Rain's friend. Kind of, or she's at least trying to get along with Rain for the sake of teen dynamics. Lorna's motives are— 
a bit opaque at this point, but they're also kind of irrelevant here because the conversation is immediately interrupted by Cannonball. Right, speaking of imports from X-Force, Cannonball, in his X-Force-y outfit, flies in out of nowhere, picks Rain up, and flies away. Okay, on the scale of Cannonballs, assuming that, like, far, far one end is, is Brett Blevins and Todd McFarlane, where do you put Strowman? I mean, if that's a 10, I feel like Strowman is maybe... I feel like Strowman's maybe a 7. Strowman does a lot of things well, but I don't think that Cannonball's design benefits from Strowman's art as much as some designs do. That's true. It's sharp-looking, but it's not sharp, It's not sharp-looking beyond just, like, this is drawn by Larry Strowman. Exactly, yeah. But Cannonball's here to rescue Wolfsbane. He watched the press conference, that disastrous, disastrous press conference that X-Factor had, and he saw how messed up she was. He's also here to ask if she's seen Richter because... You remember how Richter in New Mutants went off to look for Rain in Genosha, and we never heard anything about him again? Pepperidge Farm remembers. I mean, Peter David remembers. And Rain calls out, like, six straight years of X-Universe continuity, and it's great. Now that was a silly thing to do. You didn't have telephones in that outlaw hideout of yours? A few well-placed calls would have saved him a lot of trouble. Right! Oh my god! Preach Rain! Seriously, like, half of the last decade would have been solved with a fucking phone call here and there. Oh, I mean, this book, it just lampshades the stuff that needs to be lampshaded. Like, thank you, this era of X-Factor, for, I'm not gonna say all of what you do, see figure one from earlier in the episode, but for, like, most of what you do. X-Factor makes some valid points. (laughs) Right. But, yeah, Rain says she's where she needs to be. Not with Cable and his band of, like, literal criminals, but with Alex Summers, with Havoc, and, you know, also with X-Factor. Man, Rain, look, I know you have red hair. I know there are certain narrative obligations that you may be feeling compelled to fulfill here. Don't, don't go down that road. Down that road lies death and demons and stuff. Well, unfortunately, she doesn't have much say in that, and we'll find out why a fair bit later. But Cannibal thinks that Rain has to be brainwashed or something— at which point Polaris, being a good teammate, attacks him because he just, you know, stole Wolfsbane. Lorna points out also that X-Force is wanted for questioning. I mean, they are, again, literal criminals wanted by the literal government that X-Factor literally works for. Alex shows up too at this point to join the fight, but ultimately, and mostly because Lorna decides that it's probably okay, Cannonball is able to get away. Yeah, Wolfsbane quietly begs Lorna to let him go, and she does. Meanwhile, well away from this inter-team drama, we return to a character we've seen a few times before. Is it Strife? It is not Strife. Is it another ridiculous man in a metal suit? It is! It is Vic Chalker. You remember that guy who we've seen trying to build his robot suit to wipe out all the mutants because he hates mutants a whole bunch? Well, he's finally finished it. It fits. That was a problem before. And it has enough power to move. That was another problem before. So he goes out to murder all the mutants. And just then it starts raining and his suit shorts out and electrocutes him and he dies and is reduced immediately to a skeleton, which is some pretty impressive electrocution. I mean, it's the Marvel Universe. Electricity is like at least 20% more powerful. But, yeah, that's the end of Vic Chalker. Nonetheless, that is not the end of things related to Vic Chalker. This running gag is so dark and in, like, kind of poor taste, but it totally fucking works for me. Like, he's just so reprehensible that seeing everything go wrong for him and then seeing him die horribly is actually quite funny. 
Did they ever make action figures of those guys? <laughs> they did not. Aw. Uh, Cannonball actually flies by because this actually took place earlier in the issue when he was on his way, and he figures that that must just be a weird statue standing out in front of somebody's house. That's the sense of humor of this book. I love it. Speaking of men in silly metal suits, Strife decides time for action. He is sending the MLF to destroy Dr. Tucker's clinic, kill Dr. Tucker, and destroy his research in hopes of saving countless unborn mutant lives. Which leads us to the last issue we'll be covering today, X-Factor number 78, Playing With Fire, which opens with Dr. Tucker getting a phone call. Someone is calling to warn him that the MLF is planning to target his clinic. We are going to realize later in this issue that this is in fact Tempo, who's getting real sick of the MLF's generally murdery approach to mutant rights, because Tempo is so much better than her surroundings. Also, Dr. Tucker's her dad. Oh, I somehow didn't realize that. I mean, her last name is Tucker, and presumably that would be the reason that she would call him, even though she's a Mutant Liberation Front member. So, yeah, that's a thing. Oh, and that's why he thinks her voice sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't heed the warning, and so that's unfortunate. X-Factor, meanwhile, is back in office sitcom mode. Val introduces them to their brand new danger room. But they can't get in because the doorknob pops off after Jamie makes a jab about government contractors. Canned laughter! And Guido tries to hit on the Nasty Boys lawyer, that woman that Val was talking to before, unsuccessfully. Canned laughter! I do actually really like the scene of Guido flirting. I'm not saying he's being a good guy about it, but it's this mix of sincere and self-serving that is 100% Guido Caracella. While that's going on, Havoc takes Polaris aside to find out why she let Cannonball go. Cannonball- oh, wait, actually, this is a pretty good scene. Yeah, she points out that Cannonball came in good faith out of concern for Rain. And she thinks that using that to apprehend him would be, in her words, tacky. And also, she's switched teams enough to know how hard it can be to be on the other side from someone you care about. Kind of valid, right? I should say that's an alignment thing, not a sexual orientation thing. Uh, yes, yes, that exactly. Moral alignment, D&D style. And then Val Cooper comes in in her own X-Factor uniform. Canned laughter! She actually looks kind of good in it. I mean, weird, because she's a bureaucrat, not a superhero, but... It's a good look. I love those costumes. She does. They look really wearable. They do, yeah. A lot of layers, though. They'd be very warm, I think. They're kind of tracksuity. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's that light material. I choose to believe that. I'd like to think so. Havoc, in the meantime, has called the X-Men. He's called Professor Xavier and his brother Cyclops, asking about X-Force, trying to figure out just what was going on with Cannonball. Well, he's also calling to say, hey, just so you know, Sinister is still alive and targeting us... Yeah, thought I should give you guys a heads up, because that's a really important thing to do. Like, when Sinister pops back up, you really should call Cyclops and give him a heads up. Very true, yeah. But I enjoy this conversation, and it just, it was a good example of one of the things that this era does quite well. The 80s spent so long keeping the teams apart artificially, again, mostly due to lack of phone calls. And the 90s doesn't do that. They're each doing their own thing. Like, they each have their own missions, their own mandate, their own goals. But... They're aware of each other, they're paying attention to each other, and when they get along, they cooperate. That's what we're seeing here. The X-Men and X-Factor are on pretty good terms. I love the idea that, that all the other teams call each other to complain about X-Force. <laughs> well, and that's exactly what happens here. Keep in mind, the New Mutants turned into X-Force while Professor Xavier was gone, and he's a little pissed about how this whole direction went. We have no contact with X-Force, Rain. I do not approve of their leader or their tactics. 
They're a corruption of everything the New Mutants is meant to be. Yeah, and that actually makes a lot of sense to me, because Xavier, do you remember that time he tried to give Wolverine a demerit in the Danger Room exercise? I do. I remember that distinctly and fondly. But yeah, I mean, Professor Xavier, he's got this open-minded, optimistic dream. He tries to let people be individuals. He let Mirage wear her version of her outfit. However... I'll agree with you about the optimistic part of his dream. An open mind... I'm not going to say has never been among Charles Xavier's strengths, but it has not been among his his consistent strengths. He is he is a guy who has a very set definition of the proper way to handle things and who has historically responded very, very poorly to anything he saw as a challenge to his authority. To be fair, I totally agree with him about X-Force, though. I mean, yeah, X-Force is ridiculous. Well, anyway, X-Factor gets called into a new mission. Um, not coincidentally, the mission involving the MLF attacking that clinic. Tucker presumably tipped off the government, and so now X-Factor is headed to Kansas to deal with the clinic's situation. So I mentioned before that the story isn't officially about abortion, but it's also really obviously about abortion. And the team spends the plane ride arguing out the situation and then falling about along the lines you'd expect, um, which is rain versus everybody else. But Pietro curiously bows out of not only the argument, but the entire fight. He recuses himself from the mission. In fact, Rain does the same. They're both going to sit it out. What will eventually turn out to be the case with Pietro is that he has really complicated feelings about this because Luna, his daughter, has no powers and she is not X-gene positive. And if he had known that initially, he would. It, it's implied that he would have urged Crystal to terminate the pregnancy. And he's since changed his mind. He, he thinks that that would have been a horrible thing to do. But how fucked up he got and how badly he handled Luna not having powers has pretty much already destroyed his marriage. And this whole thing is a weird, sensitive, com- complicated subject for him and one that he doesn't really feel comfortable jumping into a fight over. This book really gets Quicksilver. This is my favorite version of Quicksilver. Oh, unequivocally. Also, the time that Quicksilver tried to expose Luna to the Terrigen Mists to at least make her into an Inhuman if she couldn't be a mutant, that was in the thing number two and three for those keeping track at home. Quicksilver is not a wildly responsible parent, to no one's particular surprise. Yes, listeners, if you were planning on uh, having a child with Pietro Maximoff, we recommend not doing so. Or even asking him to babysit. Don't, don't do that. That's a bad plan. Honestly, it's probably for the best that you just stay away from him completely. So, X-Factor argues on the, on the plane, and unfortunately, they do not arrive in time to stop the MLF. Uh, the MLF bursts in, and Wildside immediately eviscerates Tucker. Um, everyone else wrecks the lab looking for Tucker's research and samples as he bleeds out on the floor. And Reaper actually talks about how maybe the MLF should have put out a press release regarding attacking the clinic here, talking about how a lot of people would even support them. And again, this just keeps hearkening back to the original premise, because what we find is that what's actually going on here, as this second chapter uh, mentions here and there, is that Dr. Tucker, it turns out he didn't just come up with a way to let prospective parents know if their kids were going to maybe be mutants. He also came out with a machine which could remove the X gene in utero. Peter David on his website talking about this said, and I quote, I just work here. Yeah. I have some trouble with that excuse, but 
it's an interesting argument and it is a really interesting place to take this conversation and an interesting angle to explore however obliquely in a universe with mutants. And I I think an important one. And it's something that I'd really like to see more writers do more with. Honestly, it reminds me of a different angle on the Joss Whedon X-Men story, Gifted, where people could choose to have their X genes removed. I think this story in its original form could have been an interesting compliment for it. No, this is a somewhat different and (laughs) it's, it's a somewhat different issue. And while in some ways it's it's one, or at least the thing it's an allegory for is one that hinges on the same argument, which is to say bodily autonomy. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting and complex and very charged discussion. Um, now, though, it's a very charged fight. Um, Polaris shows up and she is able to t- stop arguably the most dangerous member of the team, that's that's Tempo, uh, via her metal helmet, which might not have been a great idea to wear into the fight. It's true. And Tempo, to remind everyone, she can control time for groups of people. She can basically slow down time for the people around her to make her allies comparatively faster. Or maybe it's the opposite. I was never quite clear. But either way, it is a killer move. Nerf Tempo, Tempo is OP. Wildside is about to basically save Tempo, is about to tackle Polaris from behind when a new challenger appears. Yeah, Wolfsbane has decided that even though she didn't want to be part of this fight because she didn't feel comfortable doing so, she also doesn't want Polaris to die. Polaris, who did her a solid by letting Cannonball go. So now they're even. Polaris is not eviscerated. Then, Multiple Man, who's fighting Forearm, makes a crack that I want to talk about because I don't get it. And he's, he's talking about how, how, you know, maybe Forearm has a brother named Four Flusher who can mentally operate toilets. And I figured this has to be a, had to be a reference to something or a riff on something. I cannot figure out what. And Dr. Internet has been unhelpful. Now, Four Flusher is a word not spelled that way. This is F-O-U-R, Flusher. Um, and it, it refers to someone who who's basically has unearned bravado. You know, someone who's got four cards of a flush in a poker hand. It's what it's, it's building on. Um, but that makes no sense in context, and it's it's weird. And if this is a reference that we're somehow missing, I would love to know what it is. So my take is that it was one of those jokes where you start saying it, and halfway through you realize it doesn't actually make sense, even though you thought it would when you were thinking about it. But the sentence is already halfway done, and so you kind of have to finish it. I feel like this is the kind of joke that Jay, you or me would make in an episode, and then would be like, uh, Matt, please cut that. That joke totally didn't work. But this must have gone through an editor. It definitely went through a letterer. So it's got to be one of those jokes where some, that someone makes and everyone else assumes it makes sense but doesn't want to seem like they don't get it, so just sort of laughs awkwardly along. I just kind of assumed that Madrox has the kind of brain where he does the thing where he tries to uh, uh, abort jokes halfway through a sentence. There's that word again. And then realizes he can't. Eh, either way, it's a very strange panel. I, we'll put it in the visual companion, I'm sure. Uh, the MLF finally clears out, but Reaper loses a leg when the teleport portal closes on him. Canned laughter! And I should remind everyone that Shatterstar over an X-Force already cut off one of Reaper's hands, so Reaper now has like a cyborg hand. I guess he's going to get a cyborg leg. This is going to be a theme. It's like a dismemberment-related running joke. Did he cut it into two parts? Um, I would assume so. Because he's got, you know, the parallel blades. Well, while everybody else brawls it out as the MLF uh, begins to retreat, Wolfsbane follows her enhanced senses to the dying Dr. Tucker. 
Tucker begs her to save his data, and she destroys it instead. Specifically, she enters an abort command, and then she punches through the monitor, which doesn't work at all, but I guess if she already aborted the process, then maybe punching through the monitor was just because she was pissed? I don't know. Maybe it was like a one-piece thing, like old, like Max. Still, though, the CRT is in a completely different place from the processor, and especially from the storage. Eh, well, what can you do? Maybe computers work different differently in the 616. Let's go with that. That makes me more comfortable. But she realizes, after she's done this, that Polaris is watching. You could have tried to stop me. Yes, but you see, you had a decision to make. And I didn't feel it was my place to tell you that you couldn't make it. Oh, snap! Point to Lorna Dane. The charitable part of me assumes that she said it in a less acidic way to Rain, but either way, yeah, valid point, Lorna. Speaking of valid points and those who make them, you've got questions. Uh, Brock asks via email, are there any current prominent 616 characters that come from mutant parents? I guess Cable counts, but he was aged through time travel shenanigans. I can only think of children from alternate timelines and worlds. Are mutants too new in Marvel time for a second generation to enter the school, or is this just a huge blind spot in my X-Men knowledge? So you're definitely right that most of the children of mutants, most of the children of superheroes and supervillains are in alternate timelines. Alternate, time, alternate timelines are lousy with them. As far as the 616, though, I did think of a number of examples, and I'm sure I've missed some, so listeners, feel free to chime in in the comments to this episode. As far as having one mutant parent, well, Magneto and Susanna Dane had Polaris. Of course, that's been retconned back and forth and back and forth, but at this point, I think Polaris is officially Magneto's biological daughter. Professor Xavier and Gabrielle Holler had Legion. Wolverine and Itsu had Dokken. Quicksilver and Crystal, who's an inhuman, had Luna, although she is, of course, a non-mutant. As far as two mutant parents, there were fewer of those. The only definite, clear example I could find was Mystique and Sabretooth having Graydon Creed, another human offspring, because the mutant gene does not necessarily pass down to offspring. It just usually does. And then we get weird. Then we get to Azazel, you know, the literal devil, but only kind of sometimes from Chuck Austin's run. And Mystique, they had Nightcrawler. Azazel also had Abyss and Kiwi Black and a whole bunch of other blue skins teleportation-related mutants to try to get him out of some kind of a hell dimension or something with various other parents. That certainly was a story. One of my favorite examples of two mutant parents producing a mutant offspring are Jean and Alice Hayes, who had the daughter, Molly Hayes, princess fucking powerful from Runaways, one of my favorite comic book characters ever. But that one's kind of weird, because I think Jean and Alice Hayes, while they're mutants, they were technically mutates because they were given X genes by one of their parents, who was a scientist, this awesome grandma lady who actually just showed up in the new Runaways series. As far as weird situations, so Captain Britain and Megan, I mean, in continuity, each one of them has been considered usually not a mutant, but occasionally a mutant. I don't know. They had baby Maggie, who's definitely a mutant. Apocalypse also has, like, a bajillion mutant-related descendants. Like, fucking Chamber is descended from him. I want to say Blink is descended from him. I don't know. I guess you live that long, you get around a lot. You sow your Apocalypse seed, as it were. Ew. An anonymous listener wants to know where and how they can go about buying original comics art. And I should say, this, this listener wasn't originally anonymous, but it was clear that they were intending to get this as a gift for someone, so we're going to preserve their identity. It's also a, a fairly common question that we get, so... This is to all of y'all out there who are wondering. So 
the best way to do this, if, if, if the artist is alive, if it's someone who's currently working on comics or has any kind of internet presence, look for them online. A lot of, a lot of people sell their own pages or have a link to a dealer who represents them on their websites or have contact information and can tell you whether you can track that down. That's like if you're looking for something, especially from a current book, but older stuff as well. And if you are looking for something from a current book, if you, if you read an issue and go, oh my God, that's the page I want contact the artist as soon as possible for that because um, those go fast. Now, you can also find pages at auction sites and from specific dealers. There's a whole thriving economy of, of secondhand comics art and of, of secondhand comics art dealers. There are people who swap pages. There is a really, really intense collector economy. There are a number of auction sites that specialize in comics art. If you Google around, you'll be able to find those. That said, the best deals you're probably going to get are going to be at conventions. And if you're doing that, what I would recommend is, again, try to contact people ahead of time when you can. Plan on paying cash. You usually, not always, but often get somewhat of a discount for that. Go around, talk to artists first, but also check with inkers because they usually get a certain percent of the pages from any given issue that they work on. And also look at, at some of the art dealers and see what you can find. In terms of budget, because I want to address this, that varies wildly. It's going to depend not only on the artist, it's going to depend on the characters on the page, it's going to depend on the amount of action, it's going to depend on the issue it's from, it's going to depend on the quality of the art, it's going to depend on the artist, it's going to depend on how old it is, it's going to depend on how many people want it, it's going to depend on whether it's an iconic moment, etc., and so on, and so on, and so on, and so forth. So, you... Yeah, you've, you've got a lot of factors. Set your budget. Know how much you're willing to spend going in. Shop around Google. Be wary of eBay. People sell fake originals all the time. Unless it's coming from the artist or from a certified dealer, don't do it. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that comes with certain levels of support is on-air acknowledgement by various fictional characters and omnipresent, omnipotent forces. So, along the latter lines, let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Look, Michael Saul, it's clear where you were going with this allegory. You had your agenda set. You knew the points that you wanted to make. You figured that you could take Andrew Ouellette down with a few scathingly placed one-liners and some heavy-handed illusions. But you failed, as you always will, because you didn't consider the one thing, the one factor that controls your actions even more than intent, even more than fate, and even more than destiny. Paperwork. And now the mic belongs to, uh, I believe, the, the spikiest man on the block, Strife. What in all the futures happens today? The Mutants Liberation Front's righteous fury has struck the new mutants, X-Force, and more human wastes of DNA than I can count. But today, X-Factor made us look like fools made Strife look like a fool, playing tug-of-war with my sharply armored form. After that, Edward Hackett left a banana peel in my path, causing me to comically slip and fall. It took Wildside and Forearm hours to pull my helmet blade out of the concrete floor into which it had been embedded. 
And worst of all, Adam Edmonds placed a whoopee cushion upon my superior throne, and my buttock blades failed to puncture it before it produced a sound of violent lingering flatulence. What good are buttock blades if they cannot prevent such ignominy? Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. If you like the show, please leave us a review. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every single episode, and be sure to come see us at Emerald City Comic Con in just a few weeks. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be polishing up our pelican statues. Is that a euphemism? No, it's an all-new Wolverine reference. Oh, I get it, because... Tom Taylor! We're going to have Tom Taylor on the show, and he's going to talk to us about the power of friendship. We might also touch on all-new Wolverine and X-Men Red. (laughs) 